the world I imagine is a world where people actually recognize the importance of talking about race in our policy and tailoring our policy to historical harm, because that's what we need, because that's actually how you repair that harm and that we're all okay with that, like that we don't have to sugarcoat it. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Aria Florent, co-founder at Liberation Ventures. Aria is a political entrepreneur who's interested in redefining and advancing our racial repair movement. Her nonprofit enterprise supports the ecosystem of organizations working on truth, reconciliation, and reparations in order to build public will for a comprehensive federal reparations program. We talked about Aria's education and career, what led her to start Liberation Ventures, and what she wants to achieve, and what she thinks it might take us to get there. She's well worth your listen. She makes sense and may persuade you about the justice and long-term politics of her issue. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Aria Florent with Liberation Ventures. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Aria, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah. So my name is Aria Florent. I use she and her pronouns. And I am the co-founder and managing director of Liberation Ventures. I've been doing racial justice work for the last 15 years in different spaces and places. I started out as a hyper-local organizer in East Palo Alto, California, doing a lot of community work, in particular focused on youth leadership development, civic engagement, and then went to graduate school on the East Coast and spent a little bit of time in the corporate world. I was a management consultant and I actually got lucky to be able to do a lot of racial equity work there and then started working on Liberation Ventures about four years ago and went full-time about two and a half years ago. So that's me. I love when people say like, I went to the East Coast for school and that means (laughs) the Harvard Kennedy School and... Tell me a little bit about where and how you grew up. Yeah. So I grew up in Fort Collins, Colorado, which is about an hour north of Denver. And I grew up in Boulder, Colorado. Oh, wow. Okay. So played many a soccer match in like Fort Collins myself or when I I was in high school. Track meets in Boulder. You know, Fort Collins is a super white town. um, And my family is interracial family. My mom is white. My dad is black. I was the only black girl in most of my classes. And so my parents' message to me 
growing up was always, you have to be twice as good. You can't give anyone a reason to doubt you. You got to dot all your I's, cross all your T's. It embedded a sense of perfectionism in me. It meant to be kind of a form of armor from my parents' perspective, but ended up being a double-edged sword as I got older. There were things that people would say about our family, things about my mom and why she was married to my dad, things that I just didn't really understand fully when I was in Colorado. And it was only when I got to college that I started to actually sort of dig deep into all of the all of the structures and all of the narratives that sort of built to the, the experience that I had had in Colorado. Perfectionism and going to Stanford for college tends to me like you were one of those people who made sure you got the A in every class. I could not get a B. I would have been grounded. <laughs> did that come from your parents or did that come? Did you internalize that and that really ended up coming from you? And just like on the question of the double-edged sword, did that manifest as like anxiety or how did this all hit you? Yeah. So, I mean, I think in the beginning, it definitely came from my parents. I was just so afraid of what would happen if I didn't get an A. My dad was so strict. Over time, I definitely internalized it. I think where it became a double-edged sword was kind of after after college, moving into grad school, when I was doing things that it was just impossible to be perfect at. I mean, no one's ever perfect, right? So it was a fallacy in the first place that I was ever perfect at anything. But I think the more you try to do hard things, the more you have to be okay with not being perfect at them. And so I spent some time working at the Obama Foundation after graduate school. And um, I remember talking with some colleagues there about kind of going through this process. The metaphor I used was like dropping the rocket boosters. So let's say I'm like the space shuttle. There were these things that helped me get into orbit, right? Like get to where I am. And that were completely necessary for getting into orbit. But then as soon as I'm in orbit, absolutely dead weight, right? Like things that are going to stop me from getting into, I don't know what the right space term is, but you know what I mean? You have to figure out how to drop the rocket boosters so that you can stay there. You can't be in orbit with a huge anchor. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, and so... I felt like I went through, and I'm still, you know, I'm sort of a recovering perfectionist, but I went through a real process of trying to, um, trying to release that. How was Stanford for you? So I enjoyed Stanford. For me, it was so much more diverse than where I was coming from. Obviously not as diverse as it could be and should be, but it was so amazing to get there and be able to sort of be in community with people that I had never been in community with in Fort Collins. And in particular, I just started taking tons of ethnic studies classes. Technically, my major was comparative studies in race and ethnicity. I think that I started that journey as a kind of mechanism to understand myself and my identity. And then very quickly, it just became learning about all of these systems of oppression that we live in, in the U.S. and globally. I guess I really feel grateful to Stanford for giving me the space to find that because I felt like I found, in, in studying that content, I found a purpose really early. By the time I graduated, I knew that I wanted to do racial justice work. I just didn't know what space or place or um, what role I should be playing. So 
feel a lot of gratitude. Yeah, I mean, there, and the work that people in that field have done to expose what's happened in this country that's sort of been forgotten or buried or not acknowledged is very important. But what's notable about it right now is the reaction, the laws that are being passed by the DeSantis's of the world that are catering to the people that are made uncomfortable by the sins of our past and, and present. Yeah. How does society, do you think, receive now your what you did as a major? Like when you tell people, yeah. you know, I work in racial justice, I studied these matters. I have to assume that some people are like, uh-oh, I better be t- careful talking to this woman. She's going to jump on me. Uh, <laughs> you know, if I, if yeah. I misspeak, there is a battle going on to define the country with better angels or, or, you know, different conceptions of what those might be. And you're kind of in the middle yeah. of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great point. I mean, I like to say, you know, I was a proud critical race theory major before it was a thing. I'll start by saying for me to sort of the earlier part of your question, studying that was like a healing process, actually. It was first sort of entering the issues through my intellect and through kind of academically understanding this country's history and how that history manifests in the present. But then I think it was also a process of better embodying that understanding I think a lot about what it would be like for everyone in this country to, for that just to be a, a kind of a journey, a learning journey that's embedded into how everyone grows up in this country, that you always just learn about structural racism, that you don't have to just sort of become woke, woke, quote unquote, you just, that's, that's what coming of age means. Obviously there are incredible cultural headwinds to that right now. I do think you're right that people self-selected into being friends with me. <laughs> like especially... There's you in any case, of course. But... <laughs> That's fair. Yes, yes, of course. I could see, though, but... that you would uh, not have trouble with that just from your manner. and. Yeah. I don't know. You know, it's like I was when I went to when I went to Wharton. I brought these issues up all the time. Everybody knew that this was what I cared about. And so I do think there were people that were like, I'm worried I'm going to say something wrong or blah, blah, blah. So I am not going to be around her. And that's fine, right? Like I don't spend my energy on those people anyway, you know? Yeah. I actually um, would probably do them a lot of good just to have a regular conversation. I, I think so too. I yeah. think so too. And, and that's something that, you know, I've, I've actually learned is I think a part of my role is really being willing and excited about bringing conversations about racial justice into spaces that have never really had to have them. So when I started at Wharton, this is going a little bit of a tangent, but when I started at Wharton, it was about three weeks after Michael Brown was killed. It was very jarring for me to be in that space, like the oldest business school in the country, such a hyper-capitalist institution, instead of being in East Palo Alto with my colleagues and my students where we would have been processing what was happening around Black Lives Matter every day, but instead it weren't no one was talking about it. And for I'm surprised no one was talking about it. It was it was so weird. But after a little while, I started getting to know people better and people did start talking about it. Black people and non black people. And I started realizing that other people thought it was weird no one was talking about it. And so then it was like, okay, let's talk about it. Um 
And so I got together with a few students. Actually, we ended up doing a whole forum around it a few months later when Eric Garner was killed. And I remember even during finals week, 100 people showed up to this sort of town hall. That experience taught me a lot that like a lot of people actually do want to be engaging in these issues in sort of meaningful ways, understanding what they can do. Uh, but just need someone else to help hold that conversation and help lead it. That actually spiraled into myself and a few other students co-founding a group called Return on Equality at Wharton that teaches students about racial equity in business. And that's still going today. But I think that was a big learning for me around kind of what's needed in some of these institutions. So I'll say that. I mean, I will also say that the the stuff around critical race theory does really frustrate me. It's sometimes hard to parse out what is exactly people's real perspectives on whether or not we should be learning history versus the way that the right has just tried to gin up support using this wedge issue. They've weaponized it in this way of saying like, you're not going to teach my four-year-old that she's a racist, right? And it's the knack that they have for turning something which is aimed at justice into yeah. something flammable. Yeah. 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 It's so dishonest. Yeah. Um, tell me about this decision to both go to the Kennedy School, to a public policy school and to a business school. Is this the perfectionist? making sure that she has every credential known to man. What were you aiming at when you did that rather ambitious double? Good question. Yeah, there's definitely a little bit of that. I think I definitely felt that there was an expectation I would go to grad school. I just needed to decide which one. I decided to go to business school because a number of mentors at the time basically told me, if you want to have a big impact on the world in some kind of social change field, you need to learn how to run an organization. And to do that, you go to business school. That was sort of my entry point to going to business school, which is funny because I don't even think that I registered how deeply I was going into the belly of the beast of capitalism. And I remember sitting... Uh, it was like the first day I had just met my learning team, which is like seven people that you go through a bunch of classes with. We were getting to know each other and I was sitting there in the Wharton forum and I said to my learning team, like, I don't really even believe in capitalism. And they were just like, what are you doing here? <laughs> what? <laughs> um, yeah, and you know, I I think that the binary of capitalism and anti-capitalism doesn't really serve us. It's more nuanced than that. But that was the original reason why I went to business school. And when I found out that you could do the joint degree with policy school, I was like, oh, well, policy school is way more up my alley. So let me see if I can do this too. And I ended up getting a scholarship, which was really um, great and made it an easy decision. But I will say that I never, I didn't really get the skills that I thought I would get in business school, which is how I ended up at McKinsey. I wanted to learn kind of more of those skills. And I also at that point then had to pay off my loans. Can you compare and contrast the experience of two-year policy school and two-year business school 
because there's some overlap, I think, between those two degrees, but there's also probably a somewhat different type of person, although you, you know, you and other people have done both. What did you observe, at least in your experience? I met incredible people at both. I would say there are very ambitious people at both, people who want to do big things in the world. I think that the biggest difference that I saw was sort of how people conceptualize the route to those big things. At Wharton, the culture is really about sort of how you are going to get to where you want to go. So what's the job or the role or the sector or the industry, whatever, where you want to land after business school and where you want to be for your career. And so it's sort of individualized. I think at the Kennedy School, it's much more like, what's the problem you want to solve in the world? What's the big dream? And, you know, we'll, kind of, we'll help you land, I guess. But you can look at the difference just in the career management offices and like how robust they are in a business school and how not robust they are in Kennedy School. But I think in general at the Kennedy School, just like the culture and the discussions and the vibe are more focused on the world and about like what's happening in the world, which makes sense. Did going to Wharton change your conception of capitalism? It's a good question. Um, no, I don't think it changed my conception, but I do think it made me much more aware of how... I mean, this might sound crazy, but I don't think before I went to Wharton, I realized how dedicated so many people are to preserving the status quo as it comes to capitalism. Like when I was at Stanford, I was taking classes that created the space for me to critique capitalism very, very early because there's just no way to learn about structural racism without learning about capitalism. And I love the way that many authors talk about racial capitalism and Kennedy as them as conjoined twins. And I think I, sort of took that for granted as if everyone was doing that. <laughs> so Wharton was like a wake-up call. Well, the business of America is business has been said, right? You know, like it, this country has, it, has capitalism in its veins. And my own view, my family comes out of socialist traditions on both sides. But I think that I recognize the strengths of capitalism which are many, and the weaknesses, which are many. And that's why, I mean, that's why I'm a Democrat. That's why I'm a progressive. That's why I think you need things that also seek collective goals and justice in ways that it's transparent that capitalism usually doesn't pursue. So, you know, like it's good at generating lots of shopkeepers and businesses and having them, you know, sort out who's delivering something better. And it's really not very good at solving lots of types of societal problems. And it worsens many of them. So yeah, it's not a great system, but it's better than other systems. We've seen some alternatives really shrivel countries. So I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that where I am right now is often, and this is on capitalism, but other things too, is like, I guess I'm really just focused on thinking about what's next and thinking about trying to build what's next and not assuming that 
what we have now is forever. And I may not see what's next, but I try to learn a lot about how things have evolved over time, hundreds of years before me, to try to remember how that it is possible actually for things to evolve yeah. after me. You may not get to the mountaintop. Yeah. And that's yeah. okay. Yeah. One story before on the topic of Stanford, I heard Bernice Johnson Reagan speak in my freshman year and I never forgot what she said, which was, if you are not working on something that you cannot complete, you're actually missing the point. It's a pretty good line. And you can't be perfectionist about things that you cannot complete. <laughs> yeah. So you said you went to McKinsey. Um, which is actually the kind of thing that's that was the bane of the liberal students that I went to college with and seems like it is the belly of the beast, even more so than Wharton. What was that like for you? Yeah, I think that's very fair. Man, my time at McKinsey was really complicated. Personally, it was really hard in the beginning. I was not the person who sort of got there on a whim. I did 50 practice cases before I was ready to like actually get a job. Their whole thing is case interviews. So when I got there, I had a lot to learn and it didn't come as easily to me as it did other people. And so my first like year, year and a half was really rough. Um, and then it started to click and things got better. I think that just consulting firms or in general are just a hard place to be for women and people of color. There's sort of a way of operating that is just so male dominated. Speaking on the perfectionism point, one of the things about McKinsey is that you have to be answer first. Like you always say the answer first and then you back up why you did the way you did. And if you don't do that, people will tell you your communication style is wrong and, and it's stupid, but they have a way they do it that's right. They have a they have a way they do it that's right. And for me out in the world, that's actually not right because as a black woman in the world, I'm used to being questioned. And so I'm in a habit of describing how I got to the answer, like what I did before I tell you the answer so that you actually believe me when I'm telling you the answer. And so I was constantly doing sort of these mental gymnastics to sort of flip the way that I operate in order to be successful there. I think in the end... I learned a lot of things that I'm really grateful that I learned there. And I met some phenomenal people. Ultimately, I left because I felt like there wasn't enough space for me to do the work that I want to do. And not only that, but do it in the way that I want to do it. Because as you said, there's sort of a right way of operating at McKinsey that I don't think is always useful in particular for like adaptive problems in our world that are not solved by just like slapping on some expertise, doing some data analysis and figuring it out. And then of course, there's sort of all of the stuff around kind of how McKinsey is playing and operating in the broader world. And like, do I want to actually implicitly support that by being there? And the answer was no. So when you were talking about sort of that habit of explaining how you got somewhere, I think that's a lot of why when I interview people, I talk about biography and how someone got to where they are currently running something, let's say, because I imagine that it helps people understand and give, understand where they're coming from and give them credibility in this because people don't, they don't start running something liberation ventures without background to run it, you know, like without <laughs> yeah. reason to run it. 
without passion for it. And how can you, how can you just start with that thing without knowing a little bit? And of course you can only do so much in 20 minutes or half an hour to describe it. You know, like I already feel like I know you a lot better just from this back and forth. And I suspect other people do. You were doing some teaching at Harvard while overlapping with McKinsey. Is that, is that right? Not quite while overlapping with McKinsey. There's a professor at Harvard who I took his class when I was there and then have stayed in touch with him and sometimes go back to TA classes with him. Um, his name is Ron Heifetz. I TA'd a class with him last fall. In general, he developed the adaptive leadership framework. And so last fall, he decided to apply his normal class to anti-Black racism and sexism which meant that everyone in the class was applying his framework to those issues. And so I went back to, to TA and I did that in addition to being at Liberation Ventures. What's the founding story for Liberation Ventures? Almost four years ago, a co-founder and I basically started, started talking. It started as like monthly calls. First, actually just talking about the issues, sort of like kicking around what we were seeing. He had started an education nonprofit after undergrad, so had been sort of in this direct service world. I had been in a similar world in East Palo Alto, but also in the corporate world. And both of us just felt like what we were seeing was a lot of energy and activity that was focused on treating the symptoms of racial injustice. But not a lot of interventions that we felt were really getting to the root causes of those issues. And we spent a ton of time really thinking about, okay, how do we define those root causes? These systems are so complex, like they all interweave. And where we came to was basically wealth disparities and anti-Black narratives as sort of two really huge anchors that end up holding other unjust systems in place. So. We started thinking, okay, what if you could actually shock the system on those two things? Like the theory was that you would see ripple effects across our systems. So that was the theoretical thinking that happened. We were talking every month, you know, monthly turned into more often. We did kind of a day retreat in probably, gosh, to 2019 um, and started thinking about what role we could play in that. At the time, this was pre-2020, so the world was not thinking about funding racial justice causes the way that it is now, but this was sort of on the heels of the Me Too movement, so we were seeing like big funds, billion-dollar funds being stood up for gender work. We were asking ourselves, like, well, if there, if there can be billion-dollar fo funds focused on gender equality, then there can be billion-dollar funds focused on racial equality. That was our first idea, was a billion-dollar fund focused on racial equity. It kind of spiraled from there. Who is this co-founder? So His name is Garrett Nyman, and he was at Stanford with me. Um, so that's how we know each other. So how did you get it going? If you're going to have a billion-dollar fund, you got to raise some money. you got to yeah, find do. some employees. In the old days, you'd find an office, but you got to create <laughs> yeah. an entity. What What were the steps you took? Yeah. So we just started talking to tons of people about the idea, sort of all over, people from all different spaces, 
over time, we were like, okay, well, what's this fund focused on? And we had these sort of four moonshot goals and reparations was one of them. And then ultimately landed on reparations. Um, initially as a test, be like, okay, well, let's see what happens if we start talking to people about reparations. And then we we're actually very pleasantly surprised by how much support we were seeing. And we were like, there's something here, let's run with it. So we landed on that in April, 2020, and then went full-time in June, 2020. <laughs> and of course, the tenor of our conversations changed a lot in June before it was, we were constantly sort of trying to convince people of the problem. After 2020, it was more like, all right, I know the problem is here. Convince me that reparations is the solution. But we started getting our feet under us in June of 2020. Our fiscal sponsor is PolicyLink. And Michael McAfee has been just like incredible supporter of me and of LV for a while. They came on to incubate us. And we kept raising money throughout the fall and then had enough to where um, we were sort of ready to get going in early 2021. So we feel like 2021 was our first sort of official year. So what did you do as you are now taking real shape? Yeah. So 2021 was a lot of experiments, a lot of deepening our relationships. And I will say, the other thing we did in 2020 was just started really getting to know the reparations field. This is a movement that is as old as before emancipation, actually. And so there have been, you know, people carrying this torch since then. And the biggest thing that we heard as we were talking to folks was that it just needs more money. We had had the billion dollar fund idea, but didn't know whether that was going to be something that really translated. And ended up hearing from folks, okay, this is what's most needed. Let's see if we can actually play a role in mobilizing resources into this space. So that was the initial thought. And then in 2021, we deepened our relationships with folks and started hearing and seeing more needs rather than just money. There was one organization who I ended up working with to sort of create sort of a strategic planning deck that they could use with the funder audience so that was already me using those McKinsey skills and trying to support <laughs> this work. And there were other things that basically realized that there were non-financial supports. And in particular, that there was a real need for narrative and communications work in this field. By about May of 2021, we had landed on a role as, you know, the jargony word is like a field catalyst, like trying to actually just accelerate this field, make this movement move in whatever way they need. So we did a bunch of pilots over the course of 2021 around sort of providing technical assistance. Sometimes they were really tailored and one-to-one with an organization. And then in other cases, they were more collective. So we ran an initial public opinion survey where we brought seven groups together asked them to give us feedback on what the survey should be and what they want to know. And then we had a volunteer from Oxford actually design the survey and she has all the quant skills and then through the analysis and then we gave the data back to our partners. And so we did projects like that. The other thing we did was raise our first fund. So we raised a million dollar fund in 2021 that we invested in early 2022. So it was a lot of learning. And then this year, we've been focused on bringing our narrative change pillar online. We just stood up a reparations narrative lab, which is really exciting. I have some experience thinking about 
connecting people who have money with a fund to try to make social change. And I've talked also to a fair number of other sort of political entrepreneurs who've done that in different areas. Like they're trying to find funding for climate. They're trying to fund progressive organizations in a certain state. Sonal Shah was starting up the um, Asian American Foundation. She's got a billion dollars for anti-Asian out of that world. It is not an easy thing to do, especially if you're not super connected to the centers of wealth and power that might bless it. And there's all the work of identifying once you got the money, where to send it. And the people who have the money may think they do a better job than you. Why do they need an intermediary? They can just directly fund. And so I know that there's this sort of whole nexus of decisions and strategy in being that group. And it sounds like you're working in that, but tell me a little about what you've seen, what you've discovered so far as you're building. Yeah. I mean, it's so hard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and there's a difference between raising your first million and your first billion, you know? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I mean, I don't know when we'll get to our first billion, but they definitely say that the first million is the hardest and that's that was true for sure. Or maybe the second Um, million is the hardest. I'm not sure. So (laughs) maybe, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So there's so much here. I mean, in the beginning, I think a lot of people were like, for reparations, really? One thing that I should say is that we think about reparations very differently than I think most people think. And that's part of our work is trying to really reimagine and reframe what reparations means and who it's for. And so I think that's the part of donor organizing that I love is like talking to people and sort of refreshing their perspective and learning what they think. And, you know, the way we think about what reparations is, is that four components in a four part framework, reckoning, acknowledgement, accountability, and redress. We got there through a ton of research of other sort of reparative processes across the globe. And so when we say reparations, we're not just saying financial, we're not even necessarily saying cash, we're saying non-financial as well. And that sort of all, any portfolio of reparations policy should hit on all four of, of these components. So talking to people about this is fun for me. So I like that. However, I think there's so much skepticism I think it comes from different places for different people. Um, but there's a lot of skepticism about whether or not this is possible. Like even for people who really support it, like, I don't know if this is ever going to happen. I don't have hope. And my perspective is like, well, if we don't work on it, then it's definitely not going to happen. And if we do work on it, then it might happen. So I'll keep working on it. What I now know is that a lot of intermediaries are actually founded with like founding funders. And we never had that. We were founded out of the needs we heard from the movement. We don't exist to serve philanthropy. We exist to serve not like Robin Hood Foundation, which had some hedge fund people pitching in their their large amounts. Yes, and now it exactly. does like you know over 150 million a year for poverty in New York City or something. Right, like that. Yeah. right, right. The other side of it, though, like we walk a thin line of being an organization that's both fundraising and regranting, because we always come to that with the perspective of abundance 
when I'm talking to funders, I'm like, you can fund us, you can fund our movement partners. We just want money moving to the field, like whatever way it works for you. The process of, of finding the grantees for our first round was really fun. I mean, we're building relationships with lots of different organizations and, and we really saw our first round as, as like a learning round. And so most of the organizations we funded were groups that we had built relationships with throughout like 2020 and 2021 who were aligned to that framework in some way. I mean, it's interesting sometimes in that situation, you're giving a grant to a more mature organization than you are yet. That can happen when you're kind of in a startup. It can happen, this, yeah. yeah. So the reparations movement, there are some amazing legacy organizations, but that have been chronically underfunded. So I think don't have as much infrastructure as they deserve. And then there are also a lot of really promising, but newer organizations. Um, so people are at different stages, um, but yeah. What is the state of the sort of pro reparations community, the organizations that are advocating for that? Where is that currently? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there are organizations and people across the country doing this work in lots of different ways. There are, you know, scholars and sort of knowledge workers you know, like Dr. Sandy Darity, Nicole Hannah-Jones, um, who are putting out work on this. There are people on the ground organizing from local to state to national levels. There's an organization we fund called Project Truth, Reconciliation, Reparations that is really building a direct action campaign focused on young people around this work. It is amazing. Everyone should check them out. There are people who have done reparations in specific municipalities. So, for example, Robin Rue Simmons in Evanston, Illinois, she was the one who, as an older woman, really pushed through the reparations policy in Evanston. And now she's founded her own nonprofit called First Repair that is dedicated to helping other cities do the same thing. I'll also say that there are creatives in this world. So, one of our movement partners is a company called Color Farm Media, who actually made a documentary about the process in Evanston. And that documentary is called The Big Payback. You can find it online. It premiered at Tribeca earlier this year. And then I would say there's also groups that are focused on mobilizing allies in this work. There's a group called Fund for Reparations Now that is a group of white people that are organizing other white people around reparations. And Fund for Reparations Now is connected to the National African American Reparations Commission, which is one of the legacy organizations in the space, along with INCOBRA, the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America. Where do, I don't know, the NAACPs and the Colors of Change, and do they advocate for reparations? Or are they Good clear question. Of that? Good question. So Color of Change, we are in partnership with Color of Change. Color of Change is a part of our reparations narrative lab. Um, and actually, the narrative lab itself is built on a lot of Rashad Robinson's thinking about narrative change in general. I want to call some of these legacy orgs in, especially the NAACP. I mean, I think we don't see as much visible voice from them on this issue as as I would like. What I know is that in some cases, there are local efforts, local you know chapters of those orgs that are more vocal. Um, but I think you know I think that's that's a group who I would love to see diving into this movement in full force. In addition to Evanston, 
There are some examples of reparations to other groups for other reasons here in this country, in other parts of the world. Want to highlight any of those and how well you think they worked or didn't work? Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing to know on this question is we have done this before. And not only have we done this before, this is such a well-established sort of model globally. Like these are principles that are very clear at the level of the United Nations. You know, there's the International Center for Transitional Justice that supports countries all over the world who are going through these kinds of processes. That's kind of a big deal. We actually have a report coming out in February that is about our racial repair framework. It answers the question for Liberation Ventures, what is repair and and why is it so beneficial to both individuals and society? And we did a learning to first develop the framework. I mean, I will say it's a living framework. We're so excited to put the report out just to get the feedback from it so that we can be updating the framework and just learning alongside people who are practicing repair in their various domains. But to write the report, we did a ton of learning about different case studies. A great one is the Civil Liberties Act was the reparations that were paid to people and then descendants of Japanese people who were interned. That one's interesting because it, you know, when you look at the writing about it, a lot of it is about sort of how taking that action made people in the country feel about a country that actually repair becomes a source of pride. And that is really the way we think about this work, like that actually, ultimately, the goal and the vision of reparations is about realizing, finally, a just multiracial democracy that is for all of us. I could imagine a set of circumstances where such a national policy was bipartisan and supported in a widespread way by the population and healing and kind of all the things that one would want it to be rather than divisive, which is kind of what it feels like it would be in this environment right now where well, where Trump has led the way, for example, on just uh, using race to separate and divide. In your mind, how do we get the political opportunity structure right? And what would you just love to see happen if this could unfold in the way that you best imagine it? That's an awesome question. It's such an awesome question. You named something really important, which is that this is long-term work. Like we don't expect reparations policy to pass next year. You know, we are trying to lay the groundwork for a 20 to 30 year vision. Which is not that long compared to how long we've waited since we abolished slavery. Exactly. It's not. It's not. We also have a strong perspective about the fact that this is not just a political project, but it's also a culture and narrative project. So the way we think about that time span is that it's not just about like getting the right political conditions, but it's also about sort of the cultural change work that needs to happen alongside that would actually keep the policy change in place, make it more durable. Do do you think like, do you look at 
any particular models for that. The gay marriage movement did a really good job after some attempts to do it other ways in sort of making mainstream the expression of their love for each other. And they, they kind of ultimately turned public opinion enormously and and the courts and the leading politicians. And it was on that kind of time frame. Yeah, I mean, it's 15 years. So we've learned a lot from Freedom to Marry in particular, which was the organization that sort of, you know, organized a lot of that work. We talked to Evan Wolfson, who was the founder of it every few yeah, months. had him on the show. Um, he's very, yeah, he's yeah. very good. Yeah. He's awesome. Um, I think, you know, there are, there are a lot of things, there are a lot of lessons we can draw from it. There are also, you know, we don't want to replicate everything. Um, and it's a different thing. Did. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, right. We're in just in a different, we have a different issue. It's more complex in many ways and very much in different conditions. We're actually in a process right now of learning more deeply about lots of different examples of large scale policy and cultural change so that we can actually have those insights and that lens as we're thinking about building out our longer term strategies. On the flip side, there are things for us to learn from the efforts around affirmative action and what's likely about to happen. You mean the undoing of it at the Supreme exactly. Court level, perhaps? Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. I think that it's similar to our issue on the because it's an issue that's very, very susceptible to kind of a zero sum framing. And we know that our opposition is going to use that framing. And so I'm thinking a lot about how we inoculate people against that and how we actually get in front of it. So if you were successful in that, what would the world look like? Like, well, you're you're in the position now to enact it. What gets enacted, both mo monetarily and otherwise? As you, like, is there an apology from the government? Is there a check? Is there a new holiday? What is the package? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. what what is ongoing after that? Is there a curriculum? Is, yeah. I mean, like, what what are you what are you envisioning? Totally. Yeah. So, so. My answer here, so I, I don't have this answer yet. Yeah, um, so my answer will feel, yeah, unsatisfactory. I think there's a lot of learning that we need to do as a movement, as a country, about exactly what that policy portfolio should be. From our perspective, it needs to hit on all four of those components. So there needs to be a financial component, whether it's cash or something that's more about ownership. Um you know, that's really about trying to trying to redistribute wealth. Like that's, that's where I get really excited. When I think about the reckoning category, it's like, what is our curriculum? How are we actually teaching people about history? Um, in the acknowledgement category, it is about, it is about acknowledging it is about an apology. And I think in the accountability category, what are the systems in place that what are the systems that we're putting in place to make sure that this doesn't happen again? Um, and to ensure that actually systems are like actually stop perpetuating harm because we know that so many of our systems are still perpetuating harm that actually draws back to, to slavery. What I would hope about sort of where we are as a country at that time, in that moment, is also that it's not just about some kind of one-time shock or stimulus or thing. 
This is about actually building into our culture, sort of into all of the norms and practices and values that we hold as Americans, this repair process. So that's why we often talk about trying to build a culture of repair, because we can aspire to living in a world where there's no harm, but we also know that we're not there yet. We live in a world where there is harm. And what we need to do is build the muscles to be able to actually repair that harm whenever it is caused. My hope would be at that point that private and social sector institutions and communities and churches and schools, et cetera, are also embedding that culture of repair into the way they operate. That that's actually part of the momentum building that gets us to a, a world where the federal policy is possible. A lot of times the check part is couched in terms of the problems, the wealth disparity, black and white in this country, which is dramatic. Some politicians have proposed sort of getting around the race issue on that by making class-based policies that are attacking the wealth disparity without doing it just on who your ancestors are basis because of what that brings up. What are your thoughts about that? Cory Booker has proposed, you know, that's kind of a Clintonian solution in a certain way. I see the political efficacy in, in thinking about that way. It definitely doesn't get to the core harm, right? If you're not head on saying we have an original sin in this country and we need to make up for it. Like, how do you think about the options in regard to wealth disparity and, and the charged nature of race that we, that we can't get around probably? Yeah, I, you know, I think I think about this from a place of abundance too. I think we need both. I think we need to think about it in both ways. And I think we need to, you know, develop policies that, come at these issues from different angles. I think that there's a lot we can learn from issues like baby bonds or guaranteed basic income about what it does for our communities and not just the people that are direct recipients of those policies, but the communities where they live. And I think that all of that is really useful for us as a reparations movement to kind of try to understand exactly what policies we think are most reparative. I think though that it's when we're talking about racial justice, it's incomplete, right? Because I think that the world I imagine is a world where people actually recognize the importance of talking about race in our policy and tailoring our policy to historical harm, because that's what we need, because that's actually how you repair that harm and that we're all okay with that. Like that we don't have to sugarcoat it, you know? I think. Also, that we have to do that in order to build the capacity as people and as institutions to then not cause harm again. If we keep kind of glossing over it, um, then we aren't actually creating a world that is not anti-Black. Do you think you're sufficiently radical to help lead something like this? Like, you're coming across as awfully reasonable. And (laughs) doesn't, doesn't a movement leader require some more expression of anger? Where do you position yourself in this social movement? (laughs) I am only one of so many leaders in the reparations movement 
who reach different audiences. Let's put it that way. Uh, But I think that's the point. Like to me, I'm like, this is so simple, right? Like if you think about a relationship in your life that really matters to you and you think about what do you do when that, when that relationship breaks down, right? You want to repair that relationship because that person matters to you. How do we teach our kids on the playground? Like you, you hurt someone, you say you're sorry, right? It's so simple. If we want that for ourselves, why would we not want that for the nation? And to me, there's so much power that comes with just being in our truth, truly. And so to me, that's the place where I have to stand. And I invite as many people as possible to come stand here with me. I guess someone on the other side of that, of seeing the simplicity of that might argue it's not so simple because it's not like I, as a white person, did something to you as a black person, you know, like we haven't even met. And my ancestors didn't live in the country at the time of slavery and and you're mixed race. And once you start digging into it, you can make it complicated, right? (laughs) It it becomes less simple rather quickly, especially if you're interested in making it seem not right or not doable. And that's, yeah, I mean, that's our charge, right? That's our challenge. And I can go right back to simple, right? You can feel so much pride in the fact that your country did the right thing. Yeah, I, I would. I'm for yeah. it. You know, like I yeah. don't, I, I'm not, yeah. I, I'm willing for my taxpayer dollars to go to some kind of repair of something that this nation indisputably did to a population that is unimaginably cruel and horrible and disgusting. So why would I be against that? I'm not like I'm for it, but, and I don't even want to say, but after that, like we need somebody at some point to just make it simple. I think you're right to just be like, I'm president today. I'm going to do this, but you're right. I think that the groundwork has to be laid. It's a great justice effort that you're on. What else would you like people to know about it or what you're doing that you haven't had a chance to say already? If you are excited about what we're doing and want to connect with us, please do. Who would you want to, who would you want to connect to you and why? Yeah. Good question. Thanks for asking that. You know, so I would love, we want to connect with all sorts of people. Um, We want to connect with folks on the ground who are doing this work. Tell us about your work potential future movement partners. We want to connect with funders who are interested in funding this work. We are raising money now. We will always be raising money. (laughs) We want to connect with scholars and academics. We have a report coming out, as I mentioned, about racial repair early next year. We are really excited about what might come from that report in terms of sort of new, like more additional analysis on what repair is. We've done a ton of research, but it can always go further. I would love to hear from folks um, that might want to partner with us on that. If you are, I don't know, someone running for local elected office, let us connect you to folks who can help you think about what reparations could look like where you are and how you can talk about it. Who has funded you so far? I saw you on a New Media Ventures thing. Did they help? So, yep. New Media Ventures funded us. Um, We've been really lucky to receive a lot of support from mostly institutional philanthropy and some individuals. 
Ford Foundation, MacArthur Foundation, Open Society Foundation, Kellogg Foundation, Fund for Nonviolence, Threshold Philanthropy, Threshold Foundation. We've been lucky. We've been lucky. Yeah, it's a pretty blue chip list, but they need to, it sounds like they need to be re-upped at larger levels. <laughs> they do. That is true. That is true. I mean, this costs money. This yeah. costs money. What, what, what questions should I have asked that I haven't? You could have asked a question of what do you think holds people back? Like, what do you think holds people back from just diving in? What do you think holds people back from just diving <laughs> in? I think that shame holds people back. You don't want to admit that you are descended from slaveholders you don't want to admit your country has got problems with with racism you don't want to uh i mean it's the latter or you don't want to i mean things that i think might be is you don't want black people who don't deserve it to get money i think that is a narrative we are up against i think the deservedness narrative is a really that's our work is to actually start to dismantle those i don't have money why should they get money right and that's another that's another really important thing you could imagine ginning up a lot of these i didn't do anything to them why do i have to pay for them yeah i love the frame of implicated bystanders you profited from this without maybe an act of commission, but your advantages are not all earned. Exactly. Exactly. And that gets to busting these myths of meritocracy and others. Um, but I think, I think what it really speaks to is that we all have to be agents of repair if we're actually gonna. Yeah. We just have do to this. do stuff out of love and not out of hate for God's sake. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's lovely to talk to you. Anything else you want to say? No, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. That was Aria Florent. She's at liberationventures.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.